Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we are at the end of our sermon series for the new year. We started the first week of January, um, and now we are coming to the end and the first week of March. Um, so we're on Genesis 3, 20 to 24. If you want to open your Bibles there, we will have it on the screen if you just want to see it up there. Uh, we've been talking about uh, ho- uh, beginnings in this series on Genesis, the beginning of everything. Uh, we see creation right from the start. Um, and now we're looking at hope. Uh, because a lot has happened in that beginning. God created a world that is good and in harmony. And sin entered this world and broke it and changed it. But that's not the final word. There is hope. Uh, we can have hope. The truth is you can endure almost anything as a human being if you have hope. <laughs> Without hope, not so much. But with hope, you can endure almost Anything. In fact, punishment without hope is hell. I mean, that's really abandoned hope, all ye who enter here. Uh, to be completely desperate, to have something, going through something difficult that has no ending, no possibility of change, never getting better, that is the closest picture we have of what hell is. But if there's hope, you can get through it. I think of boot camp, right? What do Marines do? They go through this strenuous, difficult life change that is extremely taxing on their body, but they know that it's going to come to an end. There's hope at the end of it. Or when you run a marathon, I mean, that's a, that's a difficult thing to do. It takes a lot of training, but there's an end in mind. There's the finish line in mind when you run a marathon. When you go through cancer treatment, it can be extremely taxing on your body, but there's hope of remission at the end of it. And this, not everything is that serious. So when you go through a diet, you're on a diet and there's a harsh sort of period of time in which you got to say no to the widows giving you nice hot cooked brownies on Tuesday afternoon, you know, or something like that. Not that that's, you know, a personal experience or anything like that. But you're, you're on this time where you've got to say no, but you're doing it with an end in mind, ultimately. Going through seminary uh, is a difficult time, but you have an end in mind. Uh, I think of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, he was uh, a Russian, obviously, who went through a gulag. And he writes about this difficult time in his life and how horrible it was. And the hardest part was the lack of hope. I mean, it was so difficult. He said, a bowl of soup was dearer than freedom. Dearer than life itself, past, present, and future. <laughs> That's what it was like in a gulag. And then he describes uh, in his book, One Day, uh, what it was like to go through one day living in a gulag. He says, the end of an unclouded day, almost a happy one, the one he described. Just one of the 3,653 days of the sentence, from bell to bell. The extra three were for leap years, 10 years uh, in a gulag. How difficult that was, because it didn't seem to have an end. But when we have hope, it changes everything. And God intended us... (laughs) To live with hope. Or to put it negatively, God did not intend us to live without hope. Uh, He doesn't end the story with mankind kicked out of the garden and left without any hope or promise of return. Part of who we are as human beings is to live with hope and anticipation of what's to come. Look with me. Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 to 24. Hope should be part of who we are. Hope should be part of who we are. You may remember what we've talked about in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Adam and Eve's sin against the Lord being tempted by the serpent. Last week we looked at the punishments upon the serpent, upon woman, and upon Adam. And now we come to this final section of what happens next, 20 to 24. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother 
of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That sounds very final. Sounds like there's not hope, but let's look carefully together. There's an outline in your bulletin, too, if you'd like to open up and take notes or see where we're going. Uh, But first, we are united by our humanity in hope. Verse 20. United by our humanity in hope. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Adam names his wife Eve. Now, you may have not have noticed that up to this point, uh, the woman is never actually called Eve until right here. She's just called the woman. Um, that her name is never actually given. And I think that's partly because she's representative of all women up until this point in time. Uh, but Adam, whose name means man, so is sort of representative of mankind, finally names his wife and he names her Eve, which means in the Hebrew, or very similar, uh, very similar to the word for life. Life. And that all life comes from all, all human life comes from her. And remember, we read last week that there's hope that her offspring would eventually bring salvation, that he would come, stomp on the serpent's head, and bring us back, perhaps, into the garden. But notice that Adam names her. Adam names her. Uh, that, that sort of indicates a separation now from himself. Before, they were both man, mankind. Now it's Adam and it's Eve. It certainly represents a certain authority over her. You don't name someone that you don't have an authority over. And we talked about that last week, that part of the punishment of the fall was this animosity between the two, or a struggle between the two. And it certainly indicates that, practically speaking, there's going to be a lot more people. (laughs) So if there's a lot of people, you're going to need more names. So now he has to actually call her by a name. He names her Eve. She's described as the mother of all living. All human beings will come from this one woman, this one mother, and actually from this couple. I thought it was interesting to to note uh, that science kind of agrees with this. Um, Here's a quote from a journal uh, that says this. In in 1987, a group of uh, geneticists published a surprising study in the journal Nature. The researchers examined the mitochondrial DNA taken from the 147 people, uh, from 147 people across all of today's major racial groups. Geneticists concluded that every person on Earth right now can trace his or her lineage back to a single common female ancestor. Isn't that interesting? Who lived around 200,000 years ago. The scientists named this common female ancestor, guess what? Eve, right? Mitochondrial Eve. They named her Eve. What a great name. The Bible beat you by by a few thousand years, but nevertheless, that's what the Bible is taught a lot, that we all come from one woman, which now, interestingly enough, science agrees with. But we are united in our humanity. We have far more in common than we do differences. Our DNA is very close among all human beings. 
Psychology is very close. That's why you have child psychology, by the way. You, you can kind of know what a kid is going through at three years old, at five years old, at eight years old, because we're all pretty similar, actually, in the way we learn and the way we grow up. Our sense of morality is pretty similar. Now, you do have differences, of course, but almost every culture in the world knows it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to kill. Uh, there are people who do those things, but they recognize that they're immoral. And you think about it as compared to anything else in this creation. The rocks, <laughs> plants, insects, reptiles, birds, and even mammals. Now, humans are so different than everything else, yet so similar to one another. And yet, funny enough, we make so much of our differences, don't we? Our differences of race, or ethnicity, or culture, or height, or location, our locale where we live. Uh, the truth of the matter is, we all have the same mom. <laughs> We're all from the same woman. Uh, people say, I don't know you from Adam. Right? That's a saying. Well, actually, it really goes all back to Eve. Uh, we all have the same beginning. We're all in Adam, fallen in him. And even Christ, who took on humanity, is our brother. He is our relative, born of the same woman, ultimately. He is human, just like us. Friends, God made human beings special. So let's just review a little bit from Genesis 1-2. to 2 what we said about human beings, that God made us in his own image, all human beings, that we're responsible to reflect God back to God. <laughs> we show forth God back to God, his image bearers here on this earth. To worship him is to reflect his image, his goodness back to him. That we're made as stewards over all creation. Remember that? We're called to subdue the earth the actual physical planet, to keep the garden, to tend to it, to have dominion over the animals of the earth. We're not just another creature. We actually have a certain responsibility over everything else that exists to take care of it, to make sure it's doing well and it's flourishing. God made us very good. Now sin has changed that. We're fallen, but the original purpose remains that we were created as a good creature. A very good creature. Which of course begs the question about our restoration. Will God make us good once again? That we're spiritual. That we're made from the dust of the earth. But we're also made from the breath of God. That we're more than flesh and bone. We're more than just what is natural. More than just cells and atoms and molecules. Which means of course that death isn't the end. When this body corrupts and falls, goes back, gets buried under the ground six feet and so forth, that's not the end of me or of you because we're more than merely physical beings. There's a hope of being recreated, renewed in Christ. The fall doesn't get the last word. We're all made special. That's all of human beings. We're given these responsibilities and Christ came to redeem those who would believe in him. Look at the next section, 21. We are clothed. We are clothed by hope in God's sacrifice. Uh, this may have been the most confusing part, perhaps, of this section. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Uh, God makes Adam and Eve clothes. You think, well, that's kind of a side issue. Why is that important? I mean, uh, actually, I think that may be the most important thing of all in this section. I'll explain in a second. Uh, yes, God is fulfilling a basic need. He is a loving father. He recognizes that there'll be a new exposure to the elements, to the sun, to the wind, to the, uh, to the cold. And he recognizes that their current clothing is not going to do it. So he clothes them more appropriately. That is certainly part 
of what is happening here. And anyone that spent any time in the Middle East or Northern Africa, you know that if you don't have the appropriate clothing, it can be very dangerous, and it makes a huge difference there. Uh, we know that they tried to clothe themselves. Remember that? Uh, they tried fig leaves, and using those fig leaves didn't work because it wasn't able to cover their shame. And that, clo- that nakedness was a picture of their vulnerability, and after they sinned, of their guilt and of their shame. And they couldn't clothe themselves. So what does God do? He makes garments of skins to clothe them, to do what they couldn't do for themselves. And where do these clothes come from? They come from the death of an animal. Goat, sheep, who knows? We don't know what type of animal. God uses a sacrifice to cover their shame. God covers our shame, friends. We cannot cover our own spiritual nakedness. We can't cover our own guilt. We can't cover our own sin. We can't cover our own shame. We try and we fail. We try with rituals. We try with religion. We try with all of our good works. And we cannot cover our own sin. God has to do it for us. And he does it, notice, as a gift. They don't pay him back for this. This is something God does of his own initiative and of his own freedom. He covers them to make sure they're safe and to make sure their nakedness is no longer exposed. Friends, he does it for us too. He does it through a sacrifice. Something had to die in order to cover their sin. That's the whole purpose of sacrifice. And as if this one little verse wasn't enough, God spent the rest of Israel's history, hundreds and hundreds of years, the sacrificial system dominates the whole worship pattern of Israel to do what? To show that sin is only covered through sacrifice. All the way up until 70 AD, in which all of a sudden, somewhat suddenly because of the Romans, the whole sacrificial system ends automatically, which happens to be right around the time when Christ died and rose from the dead for us. God shows that it sacrifices what is needed to cover our sin, and he does it through Christ, our Savior. Friends, our hope, our hope is in the covering that God gives us in the gospel. Our hope is that we will never be able to close ourselves, to recognize that our good works, our ceremony, our rituals will not do it. Uh, every religion in the world, by the way, basically teaches some form of this. Do these things, and it will cover your sin. Do these right things and it'll make up for the bad things. You'll overweigh karma with one side to the other. Engage in these specific rituals and that'll be enough to cover up anything that you've done wrong in your life. Every religion in the world basically teaches that, except for the gospel. The gospel says there's nothing you or I can do to cover our sin, but God has done it for us through his son who died as a sacrifice to redeem us. Our hope, our hope is in God spiritually clothing us with the sacrifice, that of Jesus' righteousness. Our sins are covered. We're clothed in righteousness. This is the the exchange of the gospel, the double covering, the double double imputation of Christ, to use a big word. He gets our sin, voluntarily takes it upon himself on the cross, and he gives us his righteousness. Uh, There's a story of of a noble named Cornelius Cayley, and uh, Brenda Meehan gave me this this week, and it was so powerful and so fitting to what I was going to say this morning. But uh, Cornelius Cayley uh, lived in the 1700s, so this is a long time ago. Um, he was a clerk in the treasury of the Princess of Wales. 
And he had heard this message about the righteousness of Christ. And he desperately wanted to know more about it. What does that mean, that we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ? The, the wedding garment of the believer. He heard this language and he didn't know what it was and he sought it out. So he asked a clergyman in his own denomination, I guess we call it, and who basically brushed it off and said, I don't know anything about that. Go see the Methodists. They'll tell you about it. <laughs> and the Methodists at that point in time were sort of the Whitfield people there. Uh, go to George Whitfield's tabernacle. They'll tell you all about the, the righteousness of Christ and all that. So this is what he writes. Kaylee said... And now was the first time of my entering into a Methodist congregation. I must confess, notwithstanding the warmth of my soul, the meanness of the place. Now by mean, he means lowliness, not, not you know, being rude or something. The meanness of the place and poor appearance of the people somewhat disgusted me. So he's kind of walking into this Methodist church, kind of judging those around him. Like, what is this place? Which disgust increased when I saw a mean-looking man and lowly-looking man enter the pulpit, poorly clothed in a lay habit. What, thought I, is this a fit person to preach God's word? Later he learns that the pastor by trade was a man named Humphreys. He was a shoemaker. Then there's a hymn that's sung. And then the preacher prays, and this is what he says. So it's up on the board, on the screen. When the preacher had done his prayer, I was amazed. I thought, I never heard anything so excellent before. The preacher took his text from Hebrews 13.5, upon which he preached in such a manner that he appeared as an angel from heaven to my soul. <laughs> my soul drank in every word as eagerly as the parched ground doth the falling rain. Oh, said I within myself, this is what I have wanted ever since I was born, but knew it not. I was then made sensible that the gospel of Christ's redemption, the righteousness of Christ in which we're clothed, was the only thing that could make me happy. He came to realize that's the heart of the gospel, that we cannot save ourselves, but God in Christ does it for us. And I just encourage you who believe this here, don't forget it. <laughs> Remember this gospel. Think about the fact that God has done what is necessary to cover your sin and to make you his forever. And share it. <laughs> don't keep it to yourself. It's too good to keep to yourself. And if you're here and you don't believe it yet, you're thinking about it, I just encourage you to look to Christ. He's that good. He's that great. <laughs> There's nothing you can do to save yourself. Christ has done it for you. We receive it by faith in Him. Lastly, in 22 to 24, last section, we are burdened with the hope of heaven. We're burdened with the hope of heaven. Uh, look at uh, verse 22. God leaves us with the hope of heaven. Uh, he says, the Lord God says, that man has become like us. What does he mean by that? He knows good and evil. Now, understand, there's a difference between God knowing good and evil and us knowing good and evil. Uh, what he means is God knows evil without ever experiencing it, without actually doing evil, because he's God. He can do that. But what he's saying is that we have experienced evil. In fact, in a sense, we have become evil. Human beings, by experiencing sin, are now partially evil, sinful creatures. They have engaged in what is evil and against God. 
And so God says he may no longer be able to eat from the tree of life. Remember, our bodies are made of dust and they're sustained in a supernatural way by this tree of life. And he's saying this can't go on because otherwise evil exists forever. And evil cannot exist forever. (laughs) Evil is rebellion against God and it must have an end. So he forbids Adam and Eve to have access any longer to the tree of life. He drives man east of Eden, calls him to work the ground. Remember that from the punishment of Adam, a difficult road ahead to produce the food that you need to survive. And he guards it with these cherubim. Uh, What's that all about? Cherubim are a type of angel. Um, They're sort of a powerful type of angel. Sometimes we use the term cherub. Like we say to a little kid, oh, you're a sweet little cherub, right? That's really not. An angel, uh, the cherubim in Scripture are very powerful angels. They guard it here uh, with a sword. Uh, the cherubim um, are, are pretty interesting, actually, we see in Scripture. They're used in different places. We'll get to that in just a bit. Uh, and then they're sent away from the garden and unable to access it again. Uh, so what happened here? Uh, you can't get there from here. Uh, which is funny. Right? You can get anywhere from anywhere on this planet, right? When people, somebody says you can't get there from her here, it's not true. It's all the same planet you can get from one place to the next. When it comes to the garden, that is true. It's no longer accessible. What does that mean? Is it invisible? Is it removed from the earth? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. All we know is it's guarded and inaccessible by man, by foot. But we are left here with the hope of heaven. Notice that God didn't destroy Eden. He didn't wipe it from our memories either. It's paradise lost, as John Milton said. Not paradise destroyed. It's lost, which leaves the question, can it be found? We see the same thing here in the temple. Uh, for Again, for centuries in Israel's history, the center of their worship centered around the temple. The temple, its inner court was the Holy of Holies, in which it was guarded by a curtain. What was on the curtain? Anyone remember? cherubim. And on the ark itself, I have a picture of this, uh, just a crude picture of this, uh, were also the cherubim that sat on top of it. What's that all about? Actually, there were no images allowed in the temple. So why does God make one exception? He allows uh, these images of angels on top of the curtain and on the top of the ark because it reminds us of Eden. The presence of God is guarded, but perhaps is accessible again by sacrifice. Friends, deep within us, Deep within every one of us is a longing for Eden. And remember, Eden is really just a picture of heaven. It's to be in the presence of God again. To walk with Him in the cool of the day. To live in harmony with our Creator, in harmony with one another. To live without sin. In fact, I think everything we strive for, when we strive for for happiness in something, what do we really want? We're trying to get back to Eden. So C.S. Lewis said, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. I long you for something that nothing in this world can truly satisfy because God made us for Eden. He made us for eternity. And we long for it. Notice he sends them east and puts the cherubim guarding there on the eastern side. We go further and further east, <laughs> deeper and deeper into our sin, 
But that longing never goes away. In fact, the whole Bible, if you read the Bible, the whole Bible is the search back to God, our desire to get back into fellowship with Him. Heaven is our hope, friends. And that hope is satisfied with a new heavens and a new earth. And even our bodies, when they pass away, it's a temporary state that we are, when we're apart from the body, we're present in the presence of the Lord. Death is not the end all. As Christians, if we have one message, it should be that. Death is not the end all. Christ has redeemed us even from the grave. To live is Christ, to die is gain. We are heading to something that is better by far. Be prepared for that day, friends. Uh, I want to enjoy this life. Don't get me wrong. Um, I want to live life to the full. John 10. John 10, 10 tells you to do that. God, Christ came to give us life and to live life to the full. So I want to make sure I'm using every year, I'm 40 years old now, every year of this life as best as possible. And yes, I want to be healthy. And I think there's nothing wrong with praying for people's health and wanting everybody to be healthy. Those are all good things. But <laughs> that's not our ultimate hope. Our hope ultimately is to be with the Lord free from sin and with a renewed body. Aim for heaven, friends. Long for it. Make it your ultimate goal. Meditate on it often. Let that be the focus of your life. And I think you'll end up using this life even better. Again, C.S. Lewis, one more quote from him. He said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Isn't that true? Uh, when you're awaiting something even more glorious, you want to make the most of this time because you recognize that we are eternal and awaiting for the day we'll be with Christ. Friends, hope should be part of who we are. So we've done our study here on Genesis 1-3. to I hope you don't miss that. <laughs> this is not an ending of despair. This is not an ending of sadness and gloom. This is an ending of hope. God made us for Eden. God made us for a very good world. To walk with Him in the cool of the day. And that never went away. It's part of our soul. We long for it always. It's our hope. God satisfies that hope for us in His Son, Jesus, in whom all the promises of God are yes. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, help us as a, as a church family to get to be a little picture of heaven. Indeed, in a sense, a little picture of Eden. Living in harmony, growing in righteousness, enjoying fellowship with God our Creator. And we know, Lord, we'll never get there in this life. We'll never get there in this world. Sin will always be part of the picture. The world, the flesh, and the devil will always be in opposition to your people. But we can strive for it and grow towards it as we await the day in which Christ returns and restores all that is wrong into what is right, all that is sick and dying into what is living, all that is of despair into hope. So Father, we await Christ's return. We long for that day. Keep us faithful until that day comes, Lord. Fill our hearts with the hope of heaven. 
Remind us, Lord, that we are clothed in the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness and that we're united as those made in the image of God, called to have dominion and care for the earth and awaiting the day in which those who are made very good will be restored to you. Bless us as we go today, Lord. Bless us as we turn our attention to communion, which is a celebration of this very sacrifice of Christ's death for us. It took a death in order to clothe us from our sin. And that death is Christ, our Savior, who rose from the dead, and our hope is in him. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand together. Prepare our hearts to the Lord's Jesus. Amen.